Welcome. You're listening to The Hill by Thieves Theater. I'm Gabrielle. I'm Nick, and we're thieves. We're thieves. Well, actually, beginning in 1981, we called ourselves Thieves Theater, but we didn't just do theater. We did conceptual guerrilla art projects, or what we called paratheatrical theater. Our goal was to disrupt and alter the social and political status quo. Which really means we just like putting sticks in anthills and watching the ants scurry and uh, readjust to their new reality. Their new status quo. New status quo, Exactly. So last episode, uh, we talked about Murat Saad. And in this episode, we're going to cover our move to New York City, our production of Trash the City and Death, and how all of it led up to our work on the Hill, right? So after I graduated Yale, we moved ourselves from New Haven to New York, Uh, Because back then, it's not so necessary today, but back then actors either moved to L.A. or in New York, depending on whether they wanted to do film and television or theater, right? So we moved to New York, and we had to figure out how to make a living in a super expensive, super crime-riddled, dirty city that took a lot of getting used to. Well, it was so expensive, and, you know, you had to have a literally a full-time day job to just afford uh, rent. Yeah. Uh, we, you know, we lived in Chicago before that, and then, of course, in New Haven, going to school uh, in a protected environment. It, it was a big culture shock for us. Yeah, it was, actually. Yeah. Right. Um, so Nick continued to do Man with Van, um, but promptly got stymied when his van was stolen, and yeah, we had to right. go back to Chicago and regroup and buy a new van and mm. go into even further into debt yeah (laughs) and I uh, was tired of tending bar which I did since I met Nick and so I took a quickie crash course in word processing went to a temp agency and said I had two years experience (laughs) and and then winged it so I soon started working for Rothschild Inc Um, that's the famous Jewish banking family from Frankfurt, Germany, which is going to become relevant in just a little bit. And I worked there under Wilbur Ross, who I would work for for 22 years. He was later Trump's Secretary of Commerce, if that name sounds familiar to you. Um, So I worked for him during trash. I worked for him while we were doing the Hill. I would fill in for, you know, secretaries. I was basically doing uh, presentations and word processing, and um, I worked mostly in the evenings as, uh, you know, also kind of a gatekeeper. And I would get a black car home, and I worked at Rockefeller Center, and I would ask that black car to drop me off at the shantytown. Right. And without fail, of course, the drivers asked me, are you sure you want to get off here? I don't think I can let you get off here. So that was at Rothschild, Inc. I also had a high-powered agent, which is what one did after what one got out of Yale as an actor. And I went on auditions, but I found the whole environment, the whole process very sort of unsatisfying. Uh, you know, it was all about competition and resume building and showbiz and everything that goes with that, you know, which is essentially the race to fame. And we talked a little bit about celebrity in the US. Um, and that race to fame started at Yale. 
places like Yale and Juilliard are kind of star manufacturing machines, right? They have to do that and they have to keep up their reputations that way. And as students at Yale, you know, we were hanging around and acting with people like Glenn Close and Christopher Walken and Diane Wiest during my time at the Yale Rep. And sure enough, there were plenty of eventual stars that came out of my era. John Turturro, Angela Bassett, Patricia Clarkson, um, Chris Noth. Yeah, and and I mean, uh, there were a lot of uh, actors who also just started making a living at acting, and I eventually did make a living just acting. I mean, a lot of them worked for Man With Band for a number of years. Yeah, <laughs> when they were getting started, right. right. But the other person that we, uh, that I went to school with that we had a relationship with was Frances McDormand, right? Right. She was a friend, and uh, <laughs> she, was, she was two years ahead of me. And when I got out, she asked if we needed a sublet. In New York. In New York. And we said, sure. And she said, well, you know, I just made this movie called Blood Simple. Cohen's first movie. With these guys called Joel and Ethan Cohen. Right. And they're going to hit the road trying to find distributors, going to the Toronto Film Festival, et cetera, et cetera. And they need subletters for their apartment. And we said, okay. Sure. It was like $580 or something for a two-bedroom? Two-bedroom apartment at 100th and Riverside. Right. (laughs) And Nick's dubious claim to fame. Well, yeah, I almost burned down the building. I was watching television in the back room while trying to uh, fry French fries at the kitchen. And somehow I forgot about it and it started a grease fire. Yeah. Yeah. And the the, the apartment was at a a ground floor level. So, you know, I was walking down 100th, made the right onto Riverside and saw smoke billowing i already had it under i had it under control (laughs) i had thrown blankets and suitcases on top of it in any case it took us weeks weeks to clean up the soot caused by a grease fire you know and we had burned a hole in the linoleum and i just remember uh one of the funnier lines that um we said we cleaned everything we took each and every book off and uh, yeah we had told the the cohen brothers about the fire right yeah and 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 uh, we burned a hole in your linoleum but we replaced the linoleum and and joel goes you replaced the linoleum yeah right Yeah, had to be there, but it was very funny the way he said it. So anyway, I was temping. We were working really hard on going on all these auditions, and I wasn't really suited for this whole auditioning life. I love to act. I still love to act to this day. But this this fast-track game had kind of taken the joy out of it for me. Plus, I didn't really like hitchhiking through life, right? Waiting for some director to pick me up and... uh, you know, doing the elephant in the tutu on, until somebody did. And I, I wanted more control over my life. And, um, I, you know, I wanted art, I guess you could say. So we concentrated again on Thieves Theater, uh, meaning I concentrated again. Nick's been concentrating on yeah, it all right, along. Yeah, right. right. But we had a move. Um, uh, Tanoush, we had somewhat of a breakup with Marat Saad up in Toronto. With Tanoush, you mean? Yeah, and Tanoush stayed in Toronto. He wasn't doing Thieves Theater anymore. But we were determined to keep Thieves Theater going, so we were bringing Thieves Theater to New York. To New York, yeah. And with you having graduated from uh, 
Yale, there were a lot of actors that were there in New York that we wanted to work with on Thieves Theater. Right, and also, uh, it's also at that point that we teamed up with another classmate of mine, actually he was a year ahead of me as well, but uh, playwright Eric N. And he became co-artistic director with us right. of Thieves Theater for a while. And uh, with him, we started a, you know, a nonprofit, and we developed a new logo that his father then made for us. And uh, We tried to become a legitimate nonprofit theater. Exactly. As opposed to just Thieves Theater. Winging it, you know. And so we did Traveling Light uh, and The Human Voice at Washington Square Church, which we talked about last yeah. episode a little bit with Eric. And then in 86, 87, we began Trash the City and Death. And... I want to say from the outset here that this is a huge story. An entire podcast of many, many episodes could be made out of the controversies surrounding Trash the City and Death alone. Scores, if not hundreds, of books and articles and academic papers have been written mm -hmm. about the phenomenon that is this Fassbender play. And we'll put our, some links on the website, uh, theistheater.org, where you can inform yourself about the details of that if you want, or, or we'll put some links there. As I said, it's, it's really a huge story. But in this episode, we want to encapsulate the controversy, which is honestly a daunting task. Well, controversy, scandal, it's often called a scandal. Yes, yeah, interchangeably, controversy, scandal, right? And then to focus specifically on our production. After the Murat Saad in the last episode, it's going to shine yet another light on our kind of MO and how we came to put a teepee in a shantytown. So here's the upshot. Fassbinder wrote the play in 75. It is set in Frankfurt at the time of the Häuserkampf, which means the housing struggle in the early 70s in Frankfurt, during which student protesters occupied properties that had been earmarked for development. There was massive land speculation driving you know, half of Frankfurt's West End neighborhood driving that residential population out and triggering a huge public resistance to the excesses of this, this growth roof euphoria. High-rises were going up everywhere, and numerous 19th-century buildings were being demolished and their long-established tenants driven out by very rough methods. And several hundred houses stood empty in the West End of the 70s and often in completely shabby condition. They started calling Frankfurt Manhattan. Frankfurt is on the River Main, and they all so started calling it Krankfurt instead of Frankfurt. Krank means sick in German. So uh, it was heady times in, Germ in Frankfurt at the time. And one of the prominent names in this complicated story was Ignaz Bubis. And along with being a leading voice in the public campaign against German anti-Semitism, which is partially what makes this so complicated, uh, he was also a real estate speculator that had drawn the ire of many on the political left, especially the squatters' rights movement. He was considered by many to have taken advantage of his Jewishness for business and political gain. 
So you see why, where this is a complicated story, right? Um, Fassbender's play is about a poor prostitute, Roma B., who begins to prosper when she finds a wealthy client, a character referred to not by name, but only as, quote-unquote, the rich Jew. Which makes the play probably the, the thing in the play that makes it so controversial. Yes, right. The, and it's all anybody knew about. They knew nothing about the play. Fassbender often got conflated with his anti-Semitic character in the play, which confounded him. But in any case, uh, the rich Jew is a real estate specular, speculator for the city government, and Roma's husband and pimp, Franz, becomes discouraged by Roma's success and leaves her for another man. Roma convinces the rich Jew to kill her. He avoids being charged with a crime because of his connections with the city government, and Franz is accused of her death instead. Right. He wrote this in, um, what, an overnight trip back and forth to L.A.? Supposedly, right. Well, he claimed that. but He, cla he, did, he claimed that himself, right, right. yeah, from L.A. to Frankfurt. Uh, Fassbinder was obviously allegorizing and satirizing Ignaz Bubis in this. So, a major German publisher, Suhrkamp Press, withdrew publication, which was, of course, a literary scandal in and of itself, or controversy. Uh, they withdrew all copies of the play and announced that it would not be reprinted until Fassbinder changed the name of the rich Jew. Uh, when we got the play, the character was called A, comma, the rich Jew, but I don't remember how that came about, whether Fassbinder changed it or the estate changed it. The play... Fassbinder had already been, uh, had died, uh, what? In 82. Yeah, so years before the play was even published. Right, yeah. The play tried to be staged seven times in Germany, including by Fassbinder himself, and each time unsuccessfully and to public protest. But on October 31st, 1985, when the play was supposed to open at the prestigious Frankfurt Schauspielhaus, Around 30 members of Frankfurt's Jewish community occupied the stage to protest the play. And that was sort of the height of the play's controversy, uh, that particular inf incident. It turned into an out-and-out -out scandal for several reasons, right? For one, there were two competing democratic values at stake here in uh, you know, in Germany. Uh, well, in every, every democracy, In every right? democracy, in the Federal Republic of Germany is what I wanted to say, because mm -hmm. back then it was still East and West, right. right? One of them was the protection of human dignity, and on the other hand, freedom of expression. So those who were opposed to the play argued that the play was anti-Semitic and should therefore be banned. Those who came to its and to Fassbender's defense argued artistic freedom and the right of the theater-going audience to make up their own minds about an artist as important as Fassbender uh, was already by that time, you know, a gay man with a history of championing 
championing well, yeah, the downtrodden and the marginalized, right? Fassbender was known at that time basically for his films. Yeah. He had come back to theater after already making a reputation in film. Exactly. I mean, he was already world famous, yeah. you know, so ignoring him seemed not an option. Among many other things, the case study of Trash, the City, and Death also gives insight into the nature of scandals, right? As we know all too well these days, scandals come about when rumors are circulated without the benefit of fact and especially without the benefit of context. So, Big lie. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. A lot of big lies going on. Right? Yeah. So... That production at the Schauspielhaus in 85 was eventually performed, but only for a select group of critics and never for the general public, which was therefore, you know, prevented from forming their own opinion. So the scandal and its emotional responses to it was further exacerbated because only mediators were able to speak from an informed position directly to the public at large. Of course, that's how we found the play. Yeah. We found it in journals and in, in the controversy going on inside various journals that were being published. Exactly. Right. Uh, theater journals, you know, all, all kinds of venues. But these mediators, of course, weren't neutral, right? They held very strong opinions yeah. themselves as they were telling the general public, what the play was all about. <laughs> so the scandal in Germany is about this crucial question, okay? How will West Germany come to terms with its Nazi past? It had been a mere 40 years since the end of World War II. Some argued that the play marked a turning point in Jewish life in the Federal Republic. Well, yeah, in the that play the, the, marked a turning point. He can imagine. Yeah, because you know? this is the first time uh, the community of uh, Jews stepped up and collectively protested. Exactly. Uh, since World War II, right? Well, or ever. Ever. <laughs> it was. Yeah. It's because they didn't step up, you know. And yeah. It's, 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 but we won't get into World War II and how that happened. But this is a new generation now. It's a second generation right. of Jews in Germany, and they were taking the stage. They were organizing, mm. right? Just prior to that, it needs to be mentioned too, Reagan had done his visit to the cemetery at Bitburg. Right, which was a big international, I guess, scandal. Huge international scandal. Right. Because there were not just German soldiers buried at Bits Bitburg, there were SS officers and right. Nazis buried there. Yeah, so him uh, shaking hands with, who was the Chancellor, Cole? Cole, yeah. yeah. At the, at the ceremony. You right. Know, Reagan was trying to bridge something. Yeah. Everybody was trying and to... And that happened in 85. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. In any case, it was one of the many steps taken by Germany in reckoning with its past. And we would argue that that's exactly what Fassbender was doing, fearlessly confronting the elephant in the room head on, which didn't make him anti-Semitic. No. On the contrary, that was our stance. And by the way, I would also argue, and this is from a very personal position as a German, right, that in general, 
Uh, Germany has done quite well over the decades by this point in coming to terms with its shameful past. It has confronted it head on for some time now, whereas in the U.S., that's only beginning. You know, the U.S. is only beginning to come to terms with its sins like slavery or the Native American genocide that was symbolically completed with the massacre at Wounded Knee, right. for example, right? But I'm getting ahead of myself here. So that's the overview of the nature of the controversy in Germany. But we weren't in Germany. We were in the United States, specifically in New York City, where over a million Jews lived, more than in any other city in the world, including cities in Israel. Right. So there was a whole different dynamic at play here in New York than there was in Frankfurt, Germany, 40 years after the war. And after and Fassbender um, had been stopped from, he tried to do the play himself. Yes. And perform, uh, produce it. And after that, he said that the play had only be, it was going to be done only in Frankfurt or in New York. Yes, it had to premiere in either Frankfurt right. or and, New York. And what he knew about New York, I don't know, but I mean, we knew the parallels between right. what he was talking about in the 70s in Frankfurt to the time we were there in the uh, mid-80s in New York. Exactly. So I'm going to get to that now, right? So at that point, as you know, we'd primarily worked at ABC No Rio, and we were going back there now. ABC No Rio was still and is still on Rivington on the Lower East Side of New York, where in the mid-80s, rampant real estate speculation was a hot topic. Actually, it still is, but back then, Fassbinder again, stipulated that his play needed to premiere in Frankfurt or New York. And there was a reason for that, which is what Nick was driving at. And so ABC No Rio was site-specific and zeitgeist-specific to what was going on inside New York. Yes. It was the center of, of where things were going. Artists were being kicked out of, uh, and the gentrification was happening where people... The, the East Village uh, Operation Pressure Point. I'll came get to in. that in a second, you know, but I, I, I wanted to say, I want to remind you too how ABC No Rio came about, right? They, they, they did the real estate show, squatted in a building on Delancey Street, and then were given the, the, the city gave them the building on Rivington Street where they are now. So there, you know, the Lower East Side has always been a Jewish enclave. First, it was part of Little Germany, Orchard Street, uh, which is a famous street Market. with Jewish um, uh, stores and markets, was uh, just nearby. Uh, there was a matzah factory right next to ABC No Rio. But at that time, in the uh, mid-'80s, most of the Jews had moved out of uh, the Lower East Side. Well, yes. Except for some of the shops, like the Mastabal shop and other on Orchard Street. But they had moved out, and it was now mostly Dominican and Puerto Rican families that lived Right. There. And at this point, the city owned most of the real estate in the area. Uh, but you know what? Chic Greenwich Village was nearby to the west of it. Wall Street was just to the south of it. And 
it, it, it was being gentrified at a fantastic rate. Building owners were getting tax abatements, compulsory eva- evacuations were taking place, uh, dwellings were being torn down. It, it became the hottest area for real estate speculation in New York. Yuppies go away was the cry, right? Yuppies go home, go, I thought. Yuppies go home. Whatever, whatever get rid of the yuppies. Yeah. yeah, I mean, everyone saw that when Operation Pressure Point came in. Right, right. Go ahead. You can tell what I mean. Right. Well, I I, I want to say first, to, in leading up to about what what the story of that was. Right. It was a hotbed of drug activity in the eighties. Oh Lower yeah. Side. It was so bad that in eighty four, New York City law enforcement said we've got to do something radical, which is what this Operation Pressure Point is. Um, on the U.S. Justice Department website, it says that that year, eighty four. Law enforcement made over 11,000 arrests, issued over 45,000 summonses in the neighborhood, trying to stem the drug trade, you know. And as of June 88, personnel had made over 36,000 arrests, an average of 25 arrests a day. So it was in the middle of this environment, this sort of site-specific, zeitgeist-specific environment that we decided to write the Fassbinder estate. And ask him if we could do the play. I mean, we were already rehearsing it, by the way. And we had tried to contact the estate through the representative in New York, Elizabeth Martin. Yes, and and that didn't work. But the reason I just want to say, too, that we wanted to put this particular stick in this particular anthill, because anytime something is banned or shunned or marginalized, we feel it's important to shine a light on it and to examine it and to figure out what's behind it all. And we felt a kinship with Fassbinder. Uh, He died at the age of 37 in 1982 after he had directed Corel, the the movie that was based on John Genet's 1947 novel starring Brad Davis, who was diagnosed with HIV in 85 and later died, plus like Murat Saad, we wanted theater to have broader ramifications. We wanted to be in dialogue with real life and the real world with our theater work and to have an impact beyond the walls of the theater space, theater pas marai, as the theater in Toronto was called, theater beyond walls, you know? So we, we were coming out of Maratat with that already in mind. Uh, didn't we invent Ben Travato at that yes. point, too? talk yeah. about Ben Travato. Yeah, it, it yeah. was so brilliant. Nick invented no, Ben Travato. Well, I, I mean, Ben Travato. I guess you have to look up the... Go to the dictionary and see who mm-hmm. Ben Defra- De- Travato is. You could go to the dictionary and find out who he is. But anyway. It's not a he. Is this she? No, it's it's an it. It's a concept. Well, it, what, what? Do we want to say it or do we want to make no, people look that's it up? No, you got to look up Ben uh, okay. Travato. I said you got to in the dictionary. Okay, look up Ben He's Travato. Famous. He's famous. He's in the dictionary. Okay, <laughs> and, enough. And uh, he became our publicist. Right. And because the trash had this celebrity or this scandal attached to it. Yeah. So we wanted, again, to play a little anonymity with it we, we wanted to stay somewhat anonymous we we did audition actors for the piece 
And uh, but we didn't cast them in roles or anything. We started doing an anti-theater workshop. Yes, we started doing holding anti-auditions, in fact, because we needed the right kind of actors to work on this piece, piece long term. Right. So we were already in, in a big process. Yeah. Uh, I don't know what we were going to do with the play because basically we, we don't have the rights. It was denied by uh, Elizabeth Martin. Martin, yeah, the representative here in New York. So. As we were working on it, we knew it would become a long-term process. I contacted the estate in Frankfurt directly. And I had done my own translation, and I called it Trash the City and Death, which I felt to be a better translation. Performing Arts Journal published a translation that they called Garbage, the City, and Death. And that's how it was known in the United States. It was known only because of that journal. I, say, I mean, yeah. there are other journals that used to translate it as trash. As trash as yeah. well. But, but the, the guy they published translated it as Garbage, the City, and Death. So I flew there. And they said no as well at first. But I convinced them that we weren't doing it because... We wanted to use the scandal um, and, and, and do it strictly for those purposes. Although we were, in a certain sense. We wanted to bring the topic out in the open, which is the real estate speculation, destroying a city. Okay, but that's different than some random theater no, uh, it was specific. exploiting a scandal to try to make a name for themselves. I told them, look, we come at this from a very specific place and from a very extensive history at this point, of Genet. We're called Thieves Theater because of Genet. Fassbinder did exactly the same kind of work that we were doing. He made a film out of one of Genet's novels. So they kept saying, no, no, we want a big theater, a theater like the public in New York <laughs> to do the play. And I said, you guys, the public is never, ever going to do this play. Not any theater that has a board of directors and is as big as the public is going to touch this play with a 10-foot pole, you know? Eventually, they agreed, and they said yes. They asked that we move the play to a larger theater than ABC No Rio, uh, which we did. We ended up at uh, Theater on Bond, I think it was called. It wasn't that much bigger. No, that was the whole thing. Um, it, was, it was within our budget, <laughs> but it actually didn't hold all that many more well, people. Well, uh, quite a bit more. Uh, it did, yeah, it did. But, but we're talking about 99-seat uh, theater, right, basically. Exactly. So it was then that we contacted Bonnie Maranka. It wasn't then. We contacted him before we got the rights. Okay. Uh, can I? Had, yeah, please. We had, t we had contacted her. That's when we found out. Go ahead. You tell that part. Well, we, I mean, we found out. We found out from what? You found out from the estate? Yeah. Is that the way you found out? Yeah. Oh, okay. That, but, but, we had contacted Bonnie Maranka saying, work with us. We contacted all kinds of people. Jim Leverett. We contacted well, they were all the people that were in the journal, Performing Arts exactly. Journal, that wrote about uh, the play. And we contacted them, asking them to come in and help dramaturg our work on it. Yeah, and to work with us on it, right? Sending them a, an outline of how we were working with anti-theater and... Yeah. Uh, 
extensive outline on our dramaturgy, uh, how we were following the way Fassbender worked on his pieces. His theater pieces. His theater, theater pieces, yeah. Right. Um, well, his film somewhat too, right. Very professional actors working us at, with us, but we were uh, auditioning to find very specific actors who wanted to work with us in this particular kind of method. Over a long over process. a long process, like seven months, I think, right. in the end is what it was. Because it needed to be examined fully, extensively, and deeply, right? And we never heard from either one of them. And then I found out that she went behind our back, and we hold a grudge to this day on both of them, that they went behind our back and went not to us, but to the estate. So we had formed our Went ensemble. to the estate with what? I mean... Saying they're working on this piece. Yeah, well, right. You mean before you went over there and asked to yeah. do it? Oh, right. Yeah, because yeah, we were asking him to come work on it. Right. I mean, there's there's nothing quote unquote illegal about working on a no. We in a stu- first of all, anytime you want, you can present a workshop production of something without charging uh, admission. But well, yeah. But the thing is, instead of coming to us and working with us, she she went behind our back and and tattletailed about us to the estate. So in any case, we started working with this ensemble, a third of which was Jewish, uh, tackling these tough issues. And we contacted a lot of in- individuals. And By the way, can I say something here sure. just about Bonnie <laughs> and Jim Levert yeah. and and. Basically, all critics at that time, I mean, they thought they owned the play. The play was supposedly unproducible. That's what some of the critics were saying. It's unproducible. Quote, unquote, unproducible. You read that everywhere. And so they owned the play. So they wanted to continue to own the play. They didn't want to see the public see it. They wanted to control how the public Related to Yes, and we'll get to that when the play actually opened, right? How how that came about. Okay, so uh, we also contacted, for example, Jeremy Girard, who at the time wrote for the New York Times. Now, this is after we get in the rights now. Yeah, we've we've got the rights now. Yeah, so we're putting out a press release, and people are contacting us from the press release. We're not contacting individual critics right now. That's true. We didn't contact Jeremy Girard. He contacted us. That's what was so amazing to me. I, you know, yeah. you sent out a press release and then the Times contacts you. Right. So, uh, well, why wouldn't they? Well, they, <laughs> I mean, why, why wouldn't they? Well, for one reason, we're a small theater. Unknown theater. Yeah. Unknown theater. But obviously, some theater critics know what's going on in theater journals. Right, exactly. And knowing that this play is significant. Exactly, right? and he did, and he kept in touch with us. Uh, I would say at least weekly, maybe uh, you know, more often, how's it going, how's it going? What's well, going on? Well, yeah. Jeremy, we're getting death threats from the JDL, the Jewish Defense League. Well, yeah, that was left... <laughs> That was left on the uh, uh, phone Answering machine. Answering machine. Answering machine. Yeah, yeah. And the JDL were a dangerous group back then. They had been arrested and suspected of a lot of violence in uh, in their Jewish defense. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, and then a, a, a lot of things happened. This is also a very long story. You know, yes, we contacted Leverett, who now is, I think, uh, professor of dramaturgy at Yale or something. Yeah, you yeah, know, he And is. he didn't work with us either. He, after the play opened, uh, wrote a scathing piece about us using all of the dramaturgy that we had written <laughs> all the dramaturgy. and given him. He practically took our letter and turned it 
Upside down. Upside down and wrote an article in a secondary paper in Frankfurt, an article he never could have published here in New York, by the way. Wait, what do you, you mean know? he couldn't have published? He can publish anything Any, he anything, wants anywhere, anywhere he wants. Right. I mean, but uh, he decided not to do it. Not to do it. In the mix of all the uh, press that was happening in New York. Exactly. Uh, by the way, the Times did not put out no, an article. In, in the end, after following this thing the entire way, the Times did not write anything about it once it opened. All right. Uh, we also had... Uh, this this was funny and goes towards the difference between Frankfurt and New York. Okay, this is uh, is is an amazing story um, of why the environment is much different. There was a nightclub back then called the Tunnel, and it was gonna a very happening tunnel, uh, you know, place. I mean, yes, yes, this a major was a night nightclub. stop. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, w it it was on the west side in a tunnel. Railroad tunnel. Railroad tunnel. And it was going to donate, I think, one evening's proceeds or something like yeah. that to the production. Yeah, they were going to put on a benefit yeah. for a us. A benefit. That's anyway. what it was. Yeah, a benefit. Yeah. Um, the, the guy who ran the tunnel, the manager, his name, he went by Rudolph, just Rudolph. And he was the son of a Nazi war criminal who grew up in Argentina, which is where a lot of the Nazis went after the war. He grew up in Argentina. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 but the owner of the tunnel, one of the co-owners of the tunnel was Ellie Diane, son of Moshe Diane, who was a military leader and a politician in Israel. So it was a much different environment in New in York, a city like yeah, New York. Yeah, well, then Germany. Yeah, in Germany, Germany has, yeah. Has, has to deal with its past differently than... Much differently, exactly. Yeah. Um, and, and I worked as I told you earlier, at Rothschild at the time. And I, I you know, this, this big Jewish uh, banking family. Uh, I was thinking, oh my God, what if somebody would find out? So I decided to tell Robert de Rothschild that I was doing this. He didn't say anything. I'm not sure he knew anything about it. Robert was the one that was really into theater. Yeah, stuff, he, he was yeah. the artist. Yeah. yeah. Um, I never heard back. I never heard any more about it. They probably decided it's best to just ignore it uh, versus to try to make something out of it. But in any case, it was kind of off my shoulders then. I wasn't keeping secrets from anybody. So after a seven-month rehearsal process, Thieves Theater presented the world premiere of Fassbinder's Trash the City and Death. Yeah, and by the way, the cast was probably one-third Jewish. Oh, yeah, I mean, I which is, I said that. Yeah. Yeah, is probably the same demographic that's in the city in, in, itself. Yeah, um, so, that was very important to us Yeah, as far as going in-depth on this piece and getting all input from all voices as yeah. we worked on this. So on opening night... It was a free-for-all. We had press from all over Europe, from Denmark to Italy, in the audience. And we told them, you guys, this is no longer your piece. You well, cannot each individually set up cameras. Yeah, they wanted to set up they cameras. They wanted to set up camera. Thing, yeah. And in that tiny space, there would have been no room no, for audience right. members. We said, we'll videotape it and we'll, we'll give, give you footage. Right. right. And they were outraged because they were so used to this production, this play, belonging to them and not to being secondary to a live, actual theater-going audience. Um, and the press coverage was very divided. Uh, the European press coverage. 
No. Well, yeah, the European press coverage, right, uh, it, exactly. Some it, of them it, said that there wasn't even any press coverage in the United States. Which was a lie. There well, was all kinds of press coverage. there wasn't coverage. in New York Times, but there was the, all the alternative uh, newspapers. The Advocate, and The Nation. The Voice. Uh, the Voice. Yeah. Uh, paper. Um, yeah, okay. You know, on and on. There, there was plenty of press coverage. But, like, in Germany, it, it kind of divided into the snooty... <laughs> <laughs> not so snooty, like the the Frankfurter Allgemeine, the main German Frankfurt paper, was scathing. Of course, Jim Leverett in the secondary paper in Frankfurt. But there were major German magazines like Der Spiegel and Stern who were very positive, and they really covered it favorably and, and in depth. Yeah, you know, they were and they there. they understood what it was that we were trying well, to do. Well, that's because they know? were there in the process. They were there. They knew about the anti-theater uh, technique. You know, some of them said Fassbinder would have been proud. It was a posthumous gift to Fassbinder. And others, you know, the snooty ones were saying it was amateur. It was, you know, so not knowing anything about how Fassbinder went about doing, deliberately doing theater. Um, so... That's pretty much the story of Trash the City and Death. Right, okay? right. And after that production, I went to Germany for a year because I wanted to act in German in my native language. And, and I had pretty much the same experience in theater there as I did in theater here, broadly speaking, which it was pretty much divided into in exclusivity in elitism on the one hand, and you know we will we may or may not let you into our elite club on the one hand or inclusivity and sharing resources on the other and that was going to be a big theme for us and is to this day in the theater going forward especially when we did something called rat conference which you can find on our website which was a 10-year theater movement that we co-founded it, it was all about inclusivity uh eric uh started that um so I went to Germany. Okay, lost my train. It's lost for a second. I went to Germany, and, you know, the first people I contacted were, of course, the Schauspielhaus in Frankfurt because th they sent us flowers congratulating us for actually... A telegram opening And, and a telegram, you know, opening... Oh, yeah, telegram, not flowers. Yeah, yeah a telegram, telegram, sorry. Not flowers. <laughs> <laughs> that would be too weird. They sent us a telegram on opening night congratulating us. But when I went there, they played the... Hmm, we may or may not let you in, even though I just accomplished something that they didn't, and that I came from arguably the best theater school in this country, which, you know, I had credentials, in other words. All right, fine. I, I moved on, and I ended up acting for seven months in a play at Theaterhaus in Stuttgart, which is, to this day, a wonderful venue. And when I got back... We did a couple more smaller productions, including yeah, Janae's The Maids. Yeah, we did The Maids in people's apartments. In which people's was, apartments. In other words, go to a, someone's apartment as, put up signs for maids. Yes. <laughs> but anyway, yeah, uh, it was alternative. It was, yeah. it was a different kind of production of The Maids. Right, right. it was also site-specific. Yeah, know. and the person whose apartment was... But while we were cooking up our next major feat, well, we did that. What? Right. Go ahead. The, pe the person who was what? Well, I was just going to tell some more about the maze. Oh, okay. I didn't know if you felt it was worth telling. Go ahead. You don't think it was? I Yeah, sure. I do. <laughs> I think it was great. I mean, it, it, essentially, you'd have the person who hired us be the madam. 
And yes. The, and the two, the only two actors in the play were the two maids. But it kind of, this is contingent on explaining what the maids is about to those people who aren't theater people and don't know the maids, which is why I didn't know if you wanted to get into that can of words. It was two maids and their madam, and that they were uh, talking about behind her back, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. That's... <laughs> Enough said about the maids, no? You want okay. to say more? No, I, okay. that's fine. Uh, so th the question I get asked sometimes is why would a Yale graduate park herself in a shantytown? Uh, I've answered that partially in, in the last few episodes, but a big influence on us at the time was Genet's posthumously published book, Prisoner of Love, when that came out. And it was about the time that he spent with the Black Panthers and mostly the Palestinian Liberation Organization, the PLO. And talking about that book, he once said, obviously I am drawn to people in revolt because I myself have the need to call the whole of society into question. And I think Nick had been there already, but I was slowly getting there myself after one experience after another that just made me shake my head all the time and felt inauthentic you know that word that is used so much this day and age which I don't really like because nobody can really explain to me what authenticity means but okay it gets the job done and Edmund White in his foreword to the book said Prisoner of Love reconciles Janae's feelings that everyone is of equal value and that each of us is priceless. So in the next episode, we're going to dive headlong into the Hill story. Thank you for listening to The Hill by Thieves Theater. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to like, subscribe, and hit the bell so that you know when our next episode is out. Check out our website at thievestheater.org and follow us on Instagram and Twitter at TP on the Hill. That's T-I-P-I -I on the Hill. Thanks again for listening. Thank you. Until next time. <laughs>